honour of being invited here to talk about research that I did um, eight years ago, which I conducted over eight months during my third year uh, as an undergraduate. Um, and I would like to dedicate this seminar to the memory of Dr. Sue Benson, who uh, supervised me during, well, throughout my time at Cambridge, and who is a truly excellent teacher. Um, I recently read this article online, uh, and it had the following sentence, we are now embedded in online social networks. And I'd like to relate this back to the seminar in the first, uh, week one, the first seminar we had, um, to argue that we're not all embedded in, or we were not all embedded in online social networks, eight years ago at least, in, in the days pre-Facebook, Twitter, blah, blah. Um, and this was in the days of Web 1.0, before um, Web 2.0. Um, we did this at a lecture I went to a few weeks ago. How many people here use Facebook? It's quite a select group. It's not a bad time. And Twitter? So, so I don't think maybe this particular group is embedded in online social networks. But um, so, so maybe you're a better crowd to, to talk to than the, the usual evidence-based medicine types that I, I deal with. So today I'm talking about this research um, and the main findings from my experiences working with and being part of an online community for people with bipolar disorder, uh, which fits into recent literature such as this article, which was published two years ago, um, and other articles published in the Qualitative Health Research Journal, for example. Uh, uh, so I found examples of altruistic behaviour occurring in the bulletin board of the forum and the chat room cyber community on a website for sufferers or people with bipolar affective disorder, which is otherwise known as bipolar disorder, BD, BPAD, or manic depression. I'm a librarian, so I like my research terms. Um, and having read the accepted view of this disorder in the psychiatry literature, I didn't expect to find altruism manifest upon uh, self-defining sufferers of this disorder. So people with this particular illness are portrayed in the literature as being antisocial, either when manic and high at one end of the spectrum, or um, when they're uh, depressed and low, when people often prefer to be alone. So I uh, observe people with this mood disorder reaching out to others, sharing hugs, uh, love, support, advice and information, and they seem to contradict the published accounts of the disorder, which intrigued me. I'd like to say, I'd like to say a quick word about uh, language, because there's this very interesting ethnography by Emily Martin, which came out a few years ago, which I've only just been able to discover. Um, I'm going to refer to people with bipolar disorder, but Emily Martin, uh, as she says here, deliberately uses the phrase living under the description of manic depression or bipolar disorder, which is a bit wordier, but reflects her feelings. Uh, so it's re uh, meant to reflect the social fact that they've been given a diagnosis, and it calls attention to another social fact, that the diagnosis is only one description of personally many. So I'm sticking with uh, people with bipolar disorder just for simplicity's sake. Okay, why use bipolar disorder? Why a website? I became interested in this particular mental health condition during the summer of 2003 when I met someone who became my principal informant, someone I originally called Mr X, um, who'd been diagnosed with bipolar disorder I think a few years previously uh, and who had registered with the UK mental health charity's website uh, to communicate with other people with the diagnosis. 
I've had a personal interest in mental health issues for well over a decade now. And back in 2003, having done my undergraduate um, lectures on community and Cohen and so on, I thought that this sounded like an interesting cyber community to get started on and, and quite a nice, neat, banded group of people. Uh, so it had 600 members registered with it, uh, registered with the website in mid-August 2003. By the end of my research in April 2004, it had nearly 1,400 members. So quite a large population and quite a good uh, sample, if you like. So um, these are people who are communicating online who all self-identified as having the same diagnosis, which I think is quite important to bear in mind. Let's use the mouse now. So something to draw us in. Um, so this was a post written on the website's bulletin board, uh, written by someone called Alan. I naively wrote lots of questions, um, and hindsight is a beautiful thing. So I asked, uh, I wrote a post saying, asking, do manic depressives form social networks easily? I mean, it, to me now it sounds quite clunky, and I would rephrase that. But this is how he responded. And he's quite an interesting person. I got quite involved with him because he's not only got, or he not only had bipolar disorder, but he also had um, quite a, a destructive form of cancer at the time. I can't remember what, and I don't even know if he's alive now. So he says that the depression robs him of self-esteem and self-confidence. He's reclusive. He doesn't get on in groups. Um, if he was in a group, he would become argumentative and rude. And indeed, he displayed this time and time and time again online. Um, and it was interesting that, well, I think it'd be quite scary to see him in the flesh. So you've got real life versus online um, because of the mood changes. But he enjoys the social network that he's formed through this and he's never known so many people. So that's a good thing. Let me turn the page. So, well, this is a good example. It, it underlines the dramatically unstable nature of bipolar disorder. I mean, not everyone has the same type of illness, and there's a lot of literature about that. Uh, but maybe one could argue that, especially people who chose to be on this website, did have issues with their, this illness. Uh, so, yes, and it might explain why people preferred to communicate via text, so online writing, um, with people rather than going out in groups. So I'd like to move on to the uh, to have an overview of the literature written about bipolar disorder because it's really interesting and it's a nice and easy way to get in before you actually meet people. Um, as and well as the fact that most of these autobiographies that you can find even in the Central Library in Oxford have been read by people who I, I met on the website. For example, uh, one informant from the chat room said to me, I'm on a missive to know everything about my illness. That's in my nature, and that will help me deal with it. So, this is where we can get an insight into what it's like to live with the condition. Uh, I don't know how familiar Kay Reverend Jameson will be to people in this room. She comes to Oxford quite often. So she's a psychiatrist, but she's also had manic depression, she uh, prefers to use the term manic depression um, for a very, very long time. So she wrote An Unquiet Mind, I think it was published in 1997, that was just my copy, um, and she describes her perception of her illness here. 
So it distorts her moods and thoughts, incites dreadful behaviours, destroys the basis of rational thought, which is quite a deep thing to say. And it erodes the desire and the will to live, which, again, is, is quite powerful. Uh, it may be a biological illness, but, yes, it's highly psychological. Um, and, yes, uh, the suicide is, is an underlying theme in all of this literature and, and in my, my field research. Um, I compared this with another book I found in a Cambridge bookshop at the time. Um, this lovely little book called Electro Boy. Again, written by an American, but this time a man. And he uh, writes about his mania most of the time, Electro Boy, because he's so excited. And what he said about his illness was that manic depression is about buying a dozen bottles of Heinz ketchup and all eight bottles of Windex in stock at the Food Emporium on Broadway at 4am. It's about bit blips and burps of madness. Moments of absolute delusion, bliss and irrational and dangerous choices made in order to heighten pleasure and excitement and to ensure a sense of control. Mania has such a dreamlike quality that I often confuse my manic episodes with dreams I've had. So, um, the, the exciting and the heady feeling of the manic episodes of the high are portrayed in this passage. And... Um, it's an interesting contrast to the way that Jameson describes her manias and depression, so I, I recommend. Um, and I found that reading these texts is a useful way to obviously begin to gather the background uh, knowledge before I approached informants and before I went onto the website. Um, I also found that the literature provides a different level of understanding and empathy that the psychiatry and psychology textbooks don't. So, moving on. My methodology was quite... It seems quite haphazard now, but, you know, th this is just how it developed. Um, I started by posting on the forum in, I think, uh, early or mid-September 2003, and that way I, I was uh, able to start emailing people. I used a uh, made-up hotmail address so that, uh, to protect myself and so that people could email me easily. So I read the, the literature. I interviewed my, my principal informant, Mr X, I also attended local meetings of um, a mental health charity in Cambridge uh, between October and May 2004, which I think they met uh, on a fortnightly basis in two locations. And I think most of the people worked, they were older, they came from all around Cambridgeshire. And it was that face-to-face -face connection that I really, I actually needed because I was doing so much online research. Um, and yes, I was a chat room participant when it finally opened, as well as using MSN chat or MSN Messenger. And it all seemed to culminate in this face-to-face -face meeting we had in Macclesfield at the end of March 2004, which, yes, will be discussed, I think, right at the end. So um, no one else has talked about the methodology in the literature, so as a librarian I thought I'd, I'd um, touch on this. Because I, I used the work of uh, Mark and Miller and Slater and Stokel as a way of starting this. You know, as an undergraduate, you're really quite scared and nervous about your first piece of research. Um, and of course, the principal means of gathering data was participant observation in these online communities as well as offline interviews. Um, so, Stokel's article um, reviews the anthropology of cyberspace literature. And she argues in it, in her article, that. Um, Anthropologists should study the internet and cyberspace 
because here people can transcend boundaries of the nation-state and offer new ways of creating identities and new spaces for self-representation, as I think we've seen in several of these, these seminars. So having become aware of this mental health website, I registered as a member, and then I wrote a post. And this is my really quite hideously naive post. But I did get a response. Sadly, I've, I've now lost that the, the research and the, the responses um, all these years on. But through this manner, I was able to start interacting with people. And I was able to learn more about them. Um, and through responding to threads and posts on this, this uh, forum, I was able to start to feel as if I belonged to the cyber community. Um, and when I used the chat room more extensively from January 2004 onwards, I don't know what I did that term, I seemed to be in online the whole time. I made friends with people who I'd grown to know purely from reading their posts, um, and I became familiar to them as well. So the bulk of my data comes from observations that I collected whilst I was engaged with others in chat room conversations, and I was just scribbling down as I read it on my computer screen, which, yes, again, in hindsight, I think that would have been a better way of doing this. But then again, um, so I was, uh, my informants were unaware that I was copying down their words, but as I anonymised everyone and I hope that I haven't used their words out of context, I don't feel that this is a point of ethical query, although having read more literature recently, I'm, I'm, alarm bells go off slightly, but um, that's maybe another quick discussion. I also can't remember all these years on, if I got ethical permission from Cambridge University, but my supervisors knew about my research and I think I must have done so. Yes, there was that caveat. Um, and I certainly had got to the point of data, data saturation uh, quite quickly. So, a naive beginning to my very short career. Uh, so, um, two slides, or two... Two slides to give uh, a flavour of how people were communicating to me, or on how I was communicating to them. So this is a post on the bulletin board about why uh, why people are using the bulletin board. Uh, so uh, for support, which is a theme that comes up a lot of the time. Um, not reliable, uh, keeping in touch with people via the telephone. It's a very isolating illness. Uh, and yes, it's, it's quite significant that... Um, People who haven't had BP themselves don't truly understand it. That, that yes, proved to be one of my undoings in the chat room, and I had a lot of people very suspicious about me because I, I apparently showed that I didn't quite understand it, and then they, they had problems with me. Uh, but, yes, going online was a good way to get things off your chest. And then email. So this is a bit wordier. Um, this is a woman who found the chat room in January and she just, that was it. She uh, later described how her life then consisted of getting up, I don't know, having a wash, turning on the computer, being on the computer all day and then going to bed. So she was off work, her friends and family work, she gets, well she got really lonely, finds it hard to cope with the moods, um, the majority of her depression seems to be based on the knowledge that she's alone, etc. So the chat room was very important to her because everyone was friendly, she has a source of contacts filled with nice people. 
Okay, now the outro is in bed. Um, my mum taught me actually that um, I should usually start my, my essays and, and coursework by defining my terms. So I, I just do this by rote now. Uh, this is a nice little dictionary definition of altruism. So if you have this at the back of your mind when I'm talking through all the other things I'm going to talk about, um, that might be useful. So the principle or practice of unselfish concern for all devotion to the welfare of others. And there's also the animal behaviour definition. So behaviour by an animal that may be to its disadvantage, but that benefits others of its kind as a warning cry that reveals the location of the caller to a predator. Hmm, that, that's yeah, useful. I'm going to have this slide up, and I'm not going to read it out, but uh, so it's a, a Salin's quote. Bless him. So these two, these two slides um, are ways of introducing the ideas of Marcel Morse and uh, Marshall Salin's, which exemplify how social anthropology has handled the gift, exchange, and sharing. Um, I referred to. Jerem Bell's 1991 article in which he reviewed the literature surrounding gift exchange. And he concluded that uh, anthropologists understand gifts to be different from commodities because the gift giver is not alienated from the object being given. There's a social relationship. And it's usual to bear this in mind when analysing the, uh, the debates about the gift with the repeated emphasis on the social relations between a giver and a receiver. And these debates are directly relevant to altruistic behaviour and unselfish concern, which is what I'm primarily here to talk about. So, um, you're al already all far too well aware. Most, uh, most challenged the idea of altruism in his 1924-25 essay sur le don, using Maori ethnography to theorise the nature of the gift, uh, in order to state that to accept something from someone is to accept part of their spiritual essence, their soul. So he revealed the tension between the gift as being free and disinterested versus being obligated and interested. And if there is a simple exchange of one thing for something else between a giver and a receiver, then for most, this is not a, an altruistic act because in altruism, something is being given and not receiving it. So the gift is moral. And thus to refuse the obligation to give is to reject a bond of alliance and commonality. And as Salon says, gifts make friends. So if one receives, one is compelled to reciprocate the gift. Exchanges therefore contribute to the production of social relations in various forms. For most, the gift ex exists as long as one person is in debt within a relationship. It's always interested and there's no such thing as a free gift. Uh, so he argued this through that uh, gifts are not freely given by referring to Malinowski's example of the Makula. I'm getting my pronunciation right. The constant payment made by a man to his wife is a kind of salary for sexual services rendered. And this gift or payment is always interested because it's made in exchange for sex. And he believed that a gift should enhance solidarity and that the sense of debt that the recipient gains when given something is a positive force as it creates social relations through the pattern of giving, receiving and giving in return. Right. So his argument against, uh, Moses' argument against the free gift contrasts directly with Salin's quotation, as shown here, in which he links Malinowski's pure gift to generalised reciprocity, which he argues is putatively altruistic. Salin also links generalised reciprocity to sharing and helping, which are two actions that we can observe in cyber communities, uh, as when people share information about the illness and help each other through bad times, or simply to pass the time. So when uh, Silence analyzes modes of exchange from unbalanced 
uh, balanced to unbalanced reciprocity in the Stone Age economics. The free gift is at one end of the morality spectrum, being the most moral and the most altruistic, while negative reciprocity is at the least moral end, with the example of theft. Uh, and this is one deviation Solon's made from Marcel's model by placing the free gift in this more complex model. So Solon's wrote that balanced reciprocity is willingness to give for that which is received, which refers to direct exchange, giving and receiving an equal value. And he claimed that we can observe perfectly balanced reciprocity in certain marriage transactions, friendship compacts, and peace agreements. And the balanced exchange of words and text in the communications between me uh, members of the website that I studied um, these to the creation of these friendships and these close, close relationships, as I know all well to um, myself from my time in the chat room. Even though uh, it differs slightly from the balanced reciprocity Sons discusses because it's social and not commodified. So, so these are the, the theories that I'm, I'm working with. So at the other end of the spectrum, uh, Sons describes negative reciprocity as the attempt to get something for nothing with impunity. Uh, indicative ethnographic terms include haggling or barter, gambling, chicanery, theft. Negative reciprocity is the most impersonal sort of exchange. I'm afraid I, I relied a bit too heavily on the Anthropology Undergraduates Bible, the Encyclopedia of Social and Cultural Anthropology, for this, uh, for my understanding of Levi-Strauss's work. So I apologise in advance for this. It may feel slightly insulting. Um, so Carrier uh, argues in an uh, article on exchange in my Bible that even negative reciprocity is a social relationship in itself and cannot be regarded with sheer indifference. If someone steals something for you, you're going to feel something about that. You, there's going to be a social relationship. There's going to be something there. And Carrier explains that defining a group's adversaries can be as important for a group as defining the members. For example, during my fieldwork, I received quite a lot of abuse from people who felt threatened by my presence in the chat room because I was a uh, non-VP. When I saw who defended my research, and who had a very good understanding of what I was doing, maybe better than mine, and I've been consistently open and very honest about it, um, it was then that I discovered who my allies were and my, my friends. And other people had similar experiences in this, in the chat room especially. So uh, some individuals were not widely well regarded and so weren't defended as vociferously as others when there was a problem. Because the core group, uh, and in this case it meant that the people who were online all the time, mm -hmm. especially between January and um, March of 2004, they were defining both the adversary and the liminal members who were changing according to context and experience. So do the anthropological debates over the gift and sharing help to tease out themes from my ethnography? My communication with the website's forum, uh, my, uh, yes, my communication with people on the website's forum, chat room, emails, Emerson chat messaging, uh, and then eventually this face-to-face -face meeting in Macclesfield. So most makes the link between the giving of gifts and creating sociality, which is what this website-based community appears to be doing. Yet online sharing is not about the creation of debt. It's very difficult to, to use that uh, debt in this context. And therefore it differs from Moss's definition of the gift. Uh, for this web reason, website sharing differs from the obligation created by balanced reciprocity, as detailed by Salins but is nowhere near the 
negative reciprocity, though that is arguable. I, my understanding or my thoughts is that you can't steal text from people in this context, but you can lurk on chat rooms or online forums. And you could consider that as taking text, reading without giving back, reading without reciprocating and, and responding to people. But um, I think arguably that still doesn't constitute uh, negative reciprocity. And it also differs from the balanced reciprocity of levi strauss observations on the reciprocal exchange of women, which have two points of reference for me. So first, levi strauss model of kinship is generalised exchange. I found that extremely useful because of the idea of what goes around comes around. If one is generous in one's gesture, then one will receive in return although that doesn't necessarily create a debt. And in Levi-Strauss's uh, 1949 structural analysis of exchange and patterns of marriage, uh, he argued that rules determining whom a woman should marry and producing structures of relationships between different groups therefore contribute to producing a larger social order. So he explained that social life became a movement of the constant exchange of words, wealth and women, which were all three circulated in that context between groups and individuals. And in linking kinship to exchange so forcefully, Levi-Strauss uh, led me to think about exchanges between members of this website as reflecting a transient kinship. So I think we can use all of these uh, theorists, writers, to think about the exchange of gestures, such as smiles. Oops. Nope, we're going to go back. Um, and jokes and text communication. But first, I'd just like to point out um, a point that Alan Strensky made in an online article, which is actually still available, and which refers to Web 1.0, not our Web 2.0 with Facebook and so on. So she was writing about email. If the exchange involved in the electronic conversation of email can be uh, conceived of as gift exchange, then what exactly is exchange? Words, texts. Okay, so we get back to my ethnography. In the context of the website's chat room or bulletin board, the form of the gift that we can see here through the computer-mediated textual communication is the conveyance of love, really, affection and support. For example, um, so when someone in the chat room said that they were feeling low, as we'll see in another example, uh, people would respond in this way, lots of close brackets with the name involved. And the, the normal response was TY whoever had conveyed these hugs, so TY meaning thank you. And then there were lots of kisses as well. I mean, that, that was the normal, the, norm, the, the normal way to respond. A second example... So, Jane having a bad day, hugs, Jane explains very upset and sad for no reason whatsoever, so more hugs. Um, so, in the gift of, uh, yes, the gift of these, these closed brackets to, to convey emotion, really, which is quite, well, I found it extraordinary to start with, because it was so unusual and alien to me at the time. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. So there were two chat rooms in existence in January 2004, 
And I saw that even in when people were new to the members chat room or to the foyer chat room, people were quickly uh, catching on to these, these socially accepted norms. So um, I found it interesting when uh, a rather aggressive person who'd been writing rather nasty things to me, he suddenly surprised me by calling or writing uh, nice terms of endearment to another woman in the chat room. He was calling her Hun, H-U-N. So short for honey is a term of endearment. Um, which suggested to me that he'd learned the norms of reference to women in this space and was expressing his friendly feeling. So while this language exists in many different areas of cyberspace or the internet, it was used with great, great frequency here and in the MSN messaging uh, conversations we had later on um, to reflect positive relations and mutual support such as hugging someone who's not feeling well, as you'd hug a friend face-to-face -face who isn't well. So my argument is that the online community for people with bipolar disorder is unique, and, uh, unique to the gift literature and unusual because the population of members is struggling constantly with wild mood swings. I mean, one guy had 10, was rapid cycling, so going between the two poles, um, and was rapid, oh no, he was doing this in 10 minute bursts and he just couldn't keep up, but he was still typing on, the, on his computer, which was very, very interesting to see. Um, so the capacity to give gifts, the gifts themselves and the response to the gift is constantly changing. Mr X, my principal informant, was uh, very helpful in his argument that there are people who end up stable and responsible after meds when they're on the right medication, that these sorts of people are unlikely to hang around in a bipolar chat room. Because once your bipolar disorder is being managed, once you've got the, the illness under control, you, you can then work, you can get on with your life. You might not have the inclination, unlike me, to hang around in these online, online forums. Um, although, yes, it's been my, it was my experience then that uh, both people who were using the prescribed medications and those who chose not to take the drugs, they chose to experience their symptoms, were still using the chat room. Um, and yes, the stability of moods of most people was not great. So one area where my ethnography argues against Sarlan's discussion is in relation to wealth and what he said in, the, in relation to its effect upon the ranking of individuals within social groups. So the bearing of wealth differences upon reciprocity, uh, uh, upon reciprocity, of course, is not independent of the play of ranking kinship distance. Real situations are complicated. Real situations are complicated, for instance, wealth distinctions probably constrain assistance in uh, some inverse proportion to the kinship distance of the size to exchange. And conversely, helping people in distress creates a very intense solidarity on the principle of a friend in need. I found that rather significant. And it's something that we all know and I think we can all relate to. So Solon suggests that mutual compassion leads to reciprocal behaviour. But his point about altruism is that it is compassionate, but not reciprocal, and it can only be a one-way process. So where I took issue with silence is in his argument that rank and wealth are significant in determining reciprocity. I think these two aspects are not important online, where there are none of these, uh, these real-life social status symbols which are visible on the internet to dis 
uh, differentiating discriminators against people, as Andrea Stokel and others were uh, discussing in the literature, and which is why they argue that we should study uh, cyber communities. The Sarlans argue that there is a social bond between people who exchange with one another, and that the differences in wealth between exchange partners will compel a more uh, altruistic or generalised transaction than is otherwise appropriate. They're saying that exchange partners will have greater social success together if they have an equal wealth to ensure balanced reciprocity, giving and receiving. And the beauty of cyberspace for me is that there are no barriers between participants, as long as they had access to, well, a modem, I think this and a computer, um, and probably a very slow internet connection, or as I enjoyed the, the speedier Cambridge University connection in my room at Emma. And this meant that... Um, the members of this website, or the people who chose to log on and register, could come from many different financial and social backgrounds, as I saw. Um, so some people were on benefits, other people... There was a woman who was basically a housewife, and who was not very happy about that fact. Um, there were other people who were off sick, you know, a whole range of, of employment situations, for example. So I think that Son's discussion about wealth is irrelevant largely to our discussion about the cyber community, though the very intense solidarity that he discusses is a vital a part of these observed relationships. Um, as participants in the conversations empathise and sympathise with one another, thus creating tight bonds of friendship. So although my findings conflicted with uh, Sun's argument that the bearing of wealth differences affects the nature of reciprocity, as the form that the gift is, uh, takes in cyberspace is little bearing upon the economic status of participants, his statement that helping people in distress uh, creates intense solidarity on the principle of a friend in need is true for the participants of the website's chat room. So another little bit... So Sarlan states that kinship is a social relation of reciprocity, of mutual aid. Hence, generosity is a manifest in the position of debt. And he goes on to say that the span of social distance between those who exchange conditions the mode of exchange. Kinship distance is especially relevant to the form of reciprocity. Yes, and uh, yes, reciprocity is inclined towards the generalised pole by close kinship, towards the negative extreme in proportion to kinship distance. And this idea of kinship distance was, uh, I thought, quite... It had overlaps with um, research that Kath Weston discussed in her ethnographies in the early 90s as well. So I think we have a strong argument for linking altruistic behaviour in the form of generalised reciprocity and the free or pure gift in the exchange of text and electronic hugs. And, yes, in the starts of uh, the beginnings of kinship relations. So one example of the relation between gift-giving and social relations, as well as fictive kinship, can be seen in the following example. So one day... I was logging on, I logged onto my uh, chat room. We were in February 2004, and there were a man and a woman who were online in the chat room, and they were seeking company. They wanted to meet someone face to face, so they agreed to meet for an afternoon. Subsequently, the man appeared to be quite depressed, and he didn't log on to the chat room to interact, which was unusual at the time. Um, 
So the woman became quite upset because he wouldn't even answer his mobile phone and she was now in Devon, whereas he was in London, so they, they, she couldn't go to see him. And it was my impression that after becoming more intimately involved with the man in a physical offline context, as uh, Ben Zev put it in his 2004 text Love Online, she was now more concerned about her friend than she would have been had they ever met because she had that extra insight into him as a real suffering person and she cared for him, had become involved with him. So I argue that she's, in this example, she was expressing altruistic kinship behaviour because she was uh, not interested in the man's well-being for her own sexual means, but instead in, in the sense of genuinely caring. And she actually became quite frantic because she feared that the man might have attempted suicide because he was that depressed. So at this juncture, I'm arguing that in my, well, my reply to these two questions is that yes, the gift exists, and that in this context the gift exists in the form of words or text. I'm also arguing that it's receptiveness of members who watch for the need of others who are online in the chat room or on the bulletin board um, and then respond to that need. And this is something that comes prior to the words given in response. So this receptivity is not a gift. It refers to a personal choice to turn on the computer and be connected to the website and the cyber community. <coughs> So, for example, in the example that I've just given, the woman wanted to be receptive to the man if he needed her help or support. So she was using the internet and his mobile phone number to, in order to attempt to communicate with him, find out if he was okay, find out if he needed help, maybe prevent him from uh, committing suicide. So it was a personal choice which becomes an obligation as you feel more related to people. And as you start to care for people's well-being, as time and the exchange of intimate personal details goes on over, say, three months in the chat room. So this links again to uh, Benzev's 2004 work, where he argued that reciprocal intimacy is frequently found online, where one can enjoy the liberty of being an anonymous person on the internet without barriers of personal appearance, gender, age, race or social background, or even your mental status. Um, and the work of Haraway from 1991 and Markham from 1998 supports this. There's a lot and a lot of contemporary literature. So the gift of words can be seductive, yet the ability to construct text relies on the author's mood. And whether members with bipolar disorder are able and willing to, exchange, uh, to engage in exchanging text with others. Okay, so we've examined the arguments of Mars Sarlins and Levi-Strauss in relation to uh, exchange the gift of reciprocity and social kin relations. And now I'd like to explore what, quickly, if we have time, uh, altruism means in the wider literature. So I'm arguing that, especially in the context of the websites, chat rooms and bulletin boards, altruism includes many different aspects of behaviour, including things that we can probably predict. Support, concern, affection, love, empathy, sympathy, and sharing, so sharing information, information about your medication or about your bipolar disorder, the causes behind it, your symptoms. Symptoms take up a lot of people's time because you've even got the symptoms of your illness or you've got the symptoms of the medications. So it, it's, a, it's a difficult illness to manage. And then you've got the details about people's personal lives. 
And then you've also got love. Um, and these are all arguably the gifts. So um, lots of authors coming after these, these great men, Maurice Silence and Levi Strauss, um, built on these theories of the gift. And I'm going to finish by talking through theories of uh, someone called Wisbeck and Benzev in relation to my material and how these built on the classic theories of the gift and altruism uh, and demonstrate the motives for self-sacrifice and intimacy as a precondition for altruism. So Wisbeck edited this uh, volume, Altruism, Sympathy and Helping, which was published in uh, 1978. So... A little while after most Silence and uh, Levi-Strauss, certainly, but um, then we've got everything that's come in the last 33 years. So through just this, this chapter, we can gain a great insight into motivations for altruistic behaviour. She poses the reader a list of questions. What is there about the human predicament that we are constrained under certain conditions to attend to the suffering and the safety of our fellows? Why is it that we subject ourselves to others' pain and anguish when we so actively avoid such sensations for ourselves? No one wants to feel these things, and yet we do go out of our way to help others. And all of this, when there is nothing to be personally gained. So she explained that such behaviour has been attributed to many impulses called at different times by such names as altruism, benevolence, compassion, empathy fellow feeling, sympathy, and love. Whatever the distinctions among them, these terms all refer to behaviour that has at its aim to produce or maintain, maintain or improve the physical or psychological welfare and integrity of other people. She reasons that positive social behaviour provides that motivation. And she argues that uh, research in this area began in the 1960s, actually, when the behavioural sciences began to take an interest in positive instead of negative social behaviour. And she distinguished between work in the various dis disciplines of the social sciences by arguing that while altruism is a term favoured by biologists, anthropologists and philosophers prefer the concept of sympathy. I don't know if you'd agree. And this finally led her to define the terms employed in the text title. So altruism refers to self-sacrificial behaviour in the grand manner. Helping research has investigated those bits of everyday behaviour by which social bonds are reinforced, the theoretical explanation for which one finds in the concept of sympathy. But this contrasts with silence, who was certainly not arguing for self-destruction, and nor was the pure gift that Malinowski described in his Trobriand Islands about uh, destroying any social relations in particular, I hope. Um, and we can certainly see examples of self altruism or self-sacrifice and self-sacrificial behaviour and helping behaviour in, in the ethnography that I've already described and um, that we've seen, where people were act interacting, especially in the chat room, then and there, in a real-time context, so responding directly to each other. So one example of this, uh, from eight months of research, um, was one in which I felt that uh, Westbay's definitions was, were particularly applicable. So Jane became unwell whenever she's been trying to help other people. Her kind actions had detrimental effects on her health, and they seemed to be self-destructive. Um, 
Yet the language she used in explaining her actions to other people present in the chat room where we were discussing this, um, I don't know when that was, back in, ah, early March 2004, um, was quite revealing. So on one occasion, for example, Jane believed that someone had inferred that she was selfish because she liked to play a very active role in the chat room. Um, she is a mother of three, I think, and um, that, that seemed to come across in her text-based communications. Um, and she was worried that she was hogging the limelight. So she explained in the chat room that, you see, I get my self-worth from helping others. So the thought that I appear selfish quashes it all. So that Jane was gaining her own self, uh, sense of self-worth from communicating with others in the cyber community by helping and trying to support them possibly in a motherly uh, role, concurred with many of the debates in the literature around the motivations for uh, such behaviour online, especially in the computer-mediated commu computer communication literature, um, and I can refer to heaps of people there, um, especially Collock's work in 1999. Another woman on this occasion pointed out that all the positive actions that Jane had done recently, such as making sure that one woman, who was actually suicidal when she came into the chat room, and who had actually taken an overdose, mm -hmm. um, she made sure that she received medical attention. She, she, I think she knew, I don't know how, but she knew where she lived. She phoned an ambulance. She made sure that she was taken care of. But Jane replied to that that, I tried to do stuff to make me feel good. And in this case, although Jane persists in trying to help people, in being friendly and replying to many other people's posts on the bulletin board, so gifting text. Um, because of the nature of her illness, she said that she got paranoid that other people believed that she was selfish and so a bad person. Um, Whisper's definition was extremely useful in providing a framework for my explanation for why the text-based relationships and exchanges of information might be considered positive social behaviour. So, one example. Um, many exchanges of texts in the members' chat room comply with the ways of understanding and de defining such behaviour as put forward by Wisping. So, one example on the 12th of February 2004, in the members' chat room from about 10.40 in the evening, there was a dialogue between two, uh, three people that I've renamed Naomi, Celia and Alan. So at first it appeared to be a quiet night. Not many people were in the chat room, not much was going on, maybe people's moods were stable, or we'd all been online, uh, online for quite a long time, so we knew each other by then, and we didn't need to communicate quite so much. Uh, and yes, there wasn't the usual fast exchange of text-based comments to each other. And yet, um, someone I've called Alan was voicing a concern about Naomi to a third Celia. Because Alan thought that Naomi was suicidal on this particular occasion due to very bleak comments that she'd been making to him, I think in, in MSN Messenger, so in a private forum. Alan and Celia were at the time uh, in a very close relationship, and Alan was able to persuade Celia to telephone Naomi repeatedly, so going out of the online context into the offline context into real life, using personal details such as her phone number, um, to check that she was okay and not considering any action on her life. Um, and an hour later, Naomi logged onto the chat room and had this to say. So um, this is an example of someone who was quite economically well-off, um, maybe at a different social uh, 
level to others. But she says, and, and her spelling wasn't all that great, She's she had money, but she's too scared to go out. Has nice clothes, but too scared to go out. Had a new soft top car, nowhere to go. So the, all these things. She's got lovely kids, but couldn't help them with their homework. So she felt herself to be a sad old mental case. And it was really lovely the way that Alan responded to her. He said, it's the illness Naomi that makes you feel like this. Uh, and then we had Celia phoning, um, being persuaded to phone Naomi again. And, and a fourth person even got involved. I mean, that there was a lot of activity about this. Um, and the next day, uh, must have been the 13th of February, I found out from Celia and Francis that Naomi was fine and she had survived that difficult moment quite successfully. I think that this exchange of texts brings up several points of interest. The first aspect concerns bipolar disorder as a mental illness which affects sufferers' moods and makes them vulnerable at times, such as in this case. And Naomi's statement reflects the depressing thoughts that she had which were making her feel desperate or overwhelmed. Um, and I, I, yeah. I would be wary of calling this a cry for help. I mean, quite a few people were logging on and saying that they were suicidal. We always took them seriously. And I say we because I was involved with the community. Um, because that is a serious thing, even, even online. And it wasn't really a cry for help because it, well, it did have the positive effect of provoking Celia to use um, Naomi's home phone number to... to phone her up and make sure what was going on. So, yes, this underlines ways in which the users of the chat room, so online, were overcoming the limitations of this text-based environment and going offline, using telephone or even meeting each other, and bringing the body into the relationship, um, which obviously has other ramifications in, in offline, offline, online, offline relationships. Um, now I'm not so sure if this was an, an altruistic act, but it was Celia's own choice to keep phoning um, Naomi with Alan's uh, backing. So, yes, it was an interesting example. Um, and I think I will skit on to what Benzev said. So... Ben Zayev was writing about, he wrote a book called Love Online, so um, the clue is in the title, and in the literature about a computer-mediated communication, he argued that reciprocity and the gift of information about the self, which constitutes the sharing of intimate and private details, can be analysed, of course, in both online and offline relationships. And his research was significant precisely because it helps us to think about how we create relationships in cyberspace by sharing information in order to create a sense of trust. So, for example, in an, a discussion about online love, uh, referring to Robert Sternberg's argument that romantic relationships involve a great amount of intimacy, as I'm sure we all know, uh, Benzev argues that intimacy and the reciprocal exchange of intimate details are just as visible in online relationships as offline, and that they can be equitable. And other um, scholars in the literature have argued that this is why it's so seductive to be online, because you can just share anything, you're anonymous. You can be free to disclose as little or as much as you like. Um, yet the cost of intimacy is diminished in online situations, 
uh, Ben Zayev cons- uh, consistently refers the reader to the fact that it is easy to walk away from a situation in cyberspace because you can simply turn off your computer, you can go offline, as Naomi did. I mean, she, she went away from him and then she came back. So there are costs of intimacy um, in relations of give and take, and they, these costs can be very high to individuals. Um, my last example, I think, is um, Concern Events of March 2004. I discovered that a male member of the chat room had been sending abusive and hurtful emails to six very, very vulnerable women who, um, yes, were having a really bad time with their, their illness, really. And um, I felt that this case demonstrated solidarity between members of the chat room because everyone teamed up against this person. Um, he even tried logging on with a different name, but it was quite obvious that, that he was uh, in disguise. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really quite powerful. And I think this is uh, an example of the solidarity of social and kin-like relationships that we'd all developed uh, in comparable, again, going back to Molson Salem's to the relationships that it, that they discuss and their arguments about the gift. So Benza points out that the information about ourselves which is harmless in one domain can be harmful in another. So this man used very sensitive information that he gained from the women through MSN messenger chats, so one-on-one, offline, real-life, here, um, here and now type chats or chats in a private chat room um, on the same uh, mental health website. Uh, for example, he was able to gather enough information about Jane's life history in order to persuade her that she was worthless and a bitch who could actually not help the people who she tried so hard and, and hurt herself to, to help. And I felt that was the true cost of intimacy. The emotional harm that this one person had done to Jane, Naomi and other women and included uh, deliberately breaking up Celia and Alan's relationship. So just to finish up, the argument that I would like to convey is that the theories from the anthropology of kinship can offer some plausible and relevant explanations for the behaviour of the members of this mental health website, who are initially start off as absolute strangers, and start off as being totally anonymous, of course. And a comment that Jane made about Celia and Alan made this apparent to me. Jane argued in a private email to me in January 2004 that Celia would not be so as supportive of just anyone, but because she really cared for Alan, she behaved differently towards him. This is the same Alan that I started off with. This is the man who would become argumentative and difficult in a real-life situation, so a highly volatile person who wasn't easy to get on with. So I'm arguing that sharing intimacies, following on from Benzev's argument, has the effect of creating trust and this close friendship that they enjoyed. And it is easier to support and empathise and be altruistic towards friends or created fictive kin than, of course, towards absolute cyber strangers. I'm going to finish off with an exception to this rule. In late March 2004, there were two suicide attempts. Uh, two unfamiliar people logged on to our website, uh, so they registered with the website and they clicked on the chat room link and they came into the chat room. They separately discussed their intention of killing themselves. I think one was in the States, so you know it's a public website, anyone could log on from anywhere in the world. Both of them were met with the same instant response from members of the chat room. Um, I wasn't actually online at the time, but I... Um, 
a very close friend of mine and, um, who became an informant, or a previous informant who became a friend, um, reported this back to me when I went to Macclesfield on the 27th of March, and, and she relayed it face-to-face to me. So I don't have any other information about what actually happened, but um, what I'd like to end up by saying is that I felt very proud of the response of the chat room members, proud that they, they'd done this, that they'd reacted in this immediate way. Um, and yet I, I wasn't surprised by the reaction, because I'd seen it time and time again, and I don't know if everyone was conditioned to react in such a strong and immediate way to anything relating to suicide or um, wanting to harm yourself. So, in conclusion, <laughs> at last, um, I've argued that by critically considering all these range of uh, perspectives on altruism, we can see wide evidence of this type of helping, cooperative and supportive behaviour in the computer-mediated communication between arguably disadvantaged, socially stigmatised and mood destabilised members of this website. So we've, I've talked about many elements of Morse's gift exchange and the examples of Salon's generalised and balanced reciprocity in this context. And all of these types of exchange contribute to creating networks of positive and beneficial social relations within the cyber community. Although there were also the negative experiences, such as those that I've just described, um, with this nasty man taking advantage of very vulnerable women. And the exchange of the text that I observed over eight months, which is quite a long time for, for my fieldwork, um, had the consequence of uh, creating a great many friendships and close relations amongst these arguably socially stigmatised fictive kin. As people exchanged intimate personal information and uh, as knowledge makes friends of people when they're online. And I'm arguing that the capacity to give and receive personal intimacy is almost without exception a precondition for altruistic behaviour. The fact that it, most, if not all, of the members of the Mental Health Charities website were self-diagnosed as people with bipolar disorder, so they all had this belief that they had bipolar disorder, they had maybe had the uh, diagnosis from a psychiatrist ever, but they accepted that diagnosis. And this um, bipolar disorder is characterised in the medical literature by social withdrawal or a failure to relate. I saw that this doesn't actually prevent people with this mental health condition from demonstrating kindness, love, empathy online. And I think, well, what I took from it was that the number of potential suicides which were prevented by people taking the time to watch the chat room and uh, monitor to exchange text or gift their time and effort in the process of persuading ill people against destroying themselves, or phoning up, making sure people were okay, making sure that an ambulance got to someone's house, um, said, says a great deal for the benefits of computer-mediated communication, as well as why anthropologists should definitely get involved in um, cyber-ethnographic research.